Uh, let me ask, let me ask you though: Are you a more person or a person? Those are really the two types of people in the world. Uh, on the one hand, you've got people that are up at the crack of dawn, and as soon as their feet hit the floor, they're bright, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Um, these are people that are at their happiest and, and most productive in the wee hours of the early morning. And morning people can be a little bit, bit annoying, to say, uh, which is why you, why you have some Proverbs chapter 20 or 27 verse 14 says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted, counted as most people can't handle like a Ned Flanders type before the second cup of Nescafe. Now the other group of people are, are night owls and their antipathy for the first group is maybe best summarized on a t-shirt that I saw recently. That t-shirt, t-shirt, a big cartoon picture of a worm and a big bird. And it said, the herd can have the worm because worms are gross and mornings are stupid. <laughs> there, there's a proverb, incidentally, there's proverbs written about this type of person as well. Uh, something along the lines of the emotions that they may make as they reach for the snooze button, button over and over again. Something like that being, resembling a door on its hinges. These, these are people that, that, that hit their stride much late, later in the You know, they're at their, at their best when, when the other group is turning in for the night, it seems. Now, in our passage today, which, which is 11 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we find the Apostle Paul breaking up the world along similar lines. Similar lines. It's the same lines, but sim- similar lines. He said there are day people, people and there are night people. And believers are dis- described in these verses as children of the light, children of the, of the day. The other group of, group of people, Paul really describes in various ways, um, like, like he refers to them as the rest, the, the us, or just people in general, or say a previous passage, Gentiles. Well, it's clear that he's talking, he's talking about believers. Those who live in rebellion to the Lord. And in this text, by implication, they are de- described as, as children of the night, children of darkness. So those are the t- two groups of, groups of people in the world. And, th- and those are the two groups that are seated in this sanctuary this morning. You've got your, your day people and your night, night people. Paul's going to use that distinction, that contrast, this sort of controlling analogy of day and night, of light and darkness, to explain more about Christ's future coming. So this is going to be a continuation of the discussion that began in verse 13 of the previous chapter. We, we looked at that last week. And in that part, Paul answered a concern that the Thessalonians had about the Christian dead. Okay, okay. So the people, believers who had died before the return of Christ. And in part two today, Paul is going to answer a related concern. He's this is a concern that the Thessalonians had about Christian living, those who are still alive. And these Thessalonians were asking. Something along the lines of how then live? Doing. How should we be living in the light of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And as people today who are standing really in the same place, we're standing on the same side of that great day as those early Christians were, we, we might ask the same question. What should we be doing? What ought we be to, uh, doing in the meantime as we, we watch, wait? And from this text and from this distinction between day, day people and, and night, we receive, receive wonderful ins- and wonderful encouragement as we, we seek to live faithfully until such time as our faith is finished. So we'll approach this passage under three main headings. If you're taking notes, this is how you can 
fill out the main headings. We want to first at some detail about the day of the day of the Lord. We want to consider destiny or destinies in the day of the Lord. And then, then we'll, we'll in the third place at duties, duties in view of the day of the Lord. Details, some details. We want to talk about destiny. And then we'll look at our duties. And I, and I hope my introduction doesn't mislead you at all. Okay, please understand that we're not talking about something as in, insignificant as whether you prefer waking up at waking up 5, 5 a.m. or going to bed at 1 a.m. To ask whether you're a day person or a night person is, is to directly to, to ultimate it has to do with your very identity, as, as we'll see. It's directly related to your behavior, how you conduct yourself, and it impacts significantly your eternal destiny. It determines it, in fact. So the stakes ought to be higher as we come to this, to this teaching from the Apostle Paul. So with in mind, let's consider first, first details about the day of the Lord. You'll notice that at hand is something referred to in verse 2 as the day of the Lord. Okay, that's the main event that's in view. And yes, we certainly want some more details about that day, don't we? We, you know, this was clearly the case in the, in the first century in Thessalonica, but subsequent history has revealed, it's, it's proven, that church continue, continues to clamor for more and more details about the day of the Lord. It's, it's a consuming desire for us to know. And the questions that we have about this, this great day really boil down to two. Namely, what is, what is it and when is it? What is the day of the Lord? When, when is the day of the Lord? So let's, so let's just think a little bit more about those qu questions that we have and see what, what kind of answer the, te the text. The first question is, what is the day of the Lord? And I, I probably don't need to tell you that this is a highly controversial topic and question between, between Christians that have differing views of the end times. When you have an eschatology, which is a doctrine of, of the end time, last things, when you have an eschatology that separates out events into radic radically stages with radically different of people, which require a number of different appearances or returns of Christ, that is going to significantly impact what you understand the day of the Lord to be. For example, John MacArthur, I affectionately refer to him as Johnny Mac because I love him, I respect him very much. But he says that the Lord is to be distinguished from the day of Christ. And both, both of these are from the day, the day of God. So in, in his schema, these are three distinct coming, comings, three distinct times. But I, I believe it's always problematic to read the text through the lens of the system, no matter what your system is. What, what we need to do, to do is we need to develop our system from the text. And I, and I hope you'll agree that the, the very plain, plain reading of text in other words, in other words, if, if your place, you put, you put yourself in the place, um, those first, those first believers in Salonica who are reading this letter, who's who, they're hearing this stuff for the first time. You have to ask, what would they understand the day of the, the Lord to, based on what Paul is writing's writing to them? And it's clear that they would understand Paul to be referring all through the letter in various ways to one great event. The same, the same event that he's talking about from the beginning. These uh, early believers, believers are anticipating. Just uh, glance back at chapter, at chapter 1, 10. Paul, Paul says that they're waiting for God's son, son, heaven. 
And then at the end of chapter 2, uh, he explains that these, these believers are the crown of his boasting. His boasting. And then he says, before, this, it's his joy, their pride and joy for our Lord Jesus at his coming. And then, then at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that the hearts of hearts of the Thessalonians established in, in holiness, established blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord, our Lord Jesus. And then and in the week's passage, this great event was spoken of in some detail in order to encourage us and encourage new fellow believers that had died before Christ's return. Well, remember there that he spoke about the coming of the Lord and about the, the rapture of his saints. By the way, is a perfectly word to, de to describe what's here. It's not, it's not necessarily a good word to describe something that we may uh, think happens, but to describe what Paul is describing, which is the resur resurrected and believers who have been left alive both together being caught up with the Lord in the air, air with him forever. Rapture is a great word for, for that. Again, as long as you don't rate it with all kinds of extra biblical idea, ideas. But now we come, we come into chapter 5, and that same day is you. The only shift in topic that's in, it's indicates one is the timing of the event not the event it's itself. So here, the same event is called the day of the Lord. And, and that is a term that's, a term that's very evocative of, of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets, and especially guys like Amos and Joel who spoke of such a day. They used to, to describe a time when the Lord would show up in a way and what exactly what this meant, day may meant had really depended entirely on her relationship with the Lord. It was a dual sort of a day. Um, my uncle Rick reminded me of the words of an, words of an old hymn uh, that referred to this day as sad day, glad day. Sad day, glad day, glad day, sad day. Recognize the nature of it. So the day of the day of the Lord was that he arrived on the scene to do two things simultaneously. One, to touch his enemies, and number two, to rescue his people. The Lord accomplishes both of those things in the one event. It's a sad day, bad day for the wicked, glad day for the righteous on the day of the Lord. And so, and so Jesus and the New Testament authors, they really pick up this language and this phrase to describe the night event, the, la the last great event on the calendar, which is that, that day when the Lord is simultaneously united with the resurrected righteous and when he pours out his wrath on every rebel. It was... It was the bad aspects of day, in the day, the day of the Lord. The glad stuff, that's what Paul was emphasizing in, in the pre-chapter, chapter 4, or especially verses 18 to 18. And it's large, largely the sad aspects of the day of the Lord emphasized in the present passage. So just, just take a verse 23. You got to look forward a little bit. It's okay to glance at the end. We're once, we're once again Paul that the Thessalonians kept blameless at the coming of our of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wanted to just finish that out to give you the, the complete context, so that you recognize that all all throughout this letter, at the end of every chap chapter of letter, Paul refer, refers to the coming of, Christ. and he's refer, and he's referring to one event. That's what the day of the Lord, the Lord is. I believe submit to you. And if it sounds like I'm making, if that's really obvious and I'm making too big of a deal, deal about that, just I say I'm saying these sorts of things because this is a. 
I think, unfortunately, a very highly controversial uh, thing. The other detail of the Lord that we're dying to know is when is it? Is it? We want to know times and seasons. We want to try to figure it all out. We want to try to get it on the or at least ballpark it pretty closely. But unfortunately, Paul gives us nothing. He's he, he's really kind about it. You know, he says, "You don't need don't need me to write to you about that." That's a really sweet way of um, saying that, and it's it's his style. It's his style really to say, "You don't need me to teach each you this stuff. Already know it." And he says the same thing here, not because they already know when when the Lord's coming is going to be, but be, but because they already know that they can't know. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, that it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen without any kind of warning. You know, the, the town the of the village of the men, um, um, most of the time, we time, we should say, when there's some work on your street, they leave a door hanger a few days ahead of time. It's the the door the door hanger thing. Like we, we will be working on the water mains uh, from seven until three on Monday, July eight. Water shut off during these times. That's nice to do that. Thieves don't do that sort of a thing. Thing. Like I need to belabor that, belabor that point. You understand? There's no. Door hanger, hanger this. We're going to be in your area next week on Wednesday. Please be courteous and keep the doors to your vehicles and, and your home unlocked. Happen. And in the same way, the day of the Lord will come suddenly without any kind of warning. warning. And so there's no time or seasons for you to, you to know. And if this analogy... If this comparison sounds, sounds familiar to you, um, that's because it comes, it comes, similar themes are struck in, in the path that Pastor Matt read, Matt read earlier in the service. It's because Paul is drawing directly off of G Jesus' own teaching that day. For example, Jesus tells his disciples many times, but finally in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he says, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Lord has fixed by, fixed by his own authority. And, and likewise, these comparisons, like thief in the night, or as we'll see in a minute, labor pains, all of these comparison illustrations origi originated with Jesus. And so you can see how dependent Paul is and we are on Jesus' own teaching on these matters. And again, maybe I'm laboring these points I'm sorry if I am, but I guess it just struck me, struck me again this week, how simple these details tales are about the, of the Lord, but how often and how enthusiastically Christians complicate them or deny them. In accepting that the day, that the day of the Lord is imminent return, both for judgment and salvation, many Christians want to draw you know, complicated, complicated grams and timelines that include multiple comings. And, and when, when Jesus says, no man knows the day or the, the hour, and then, then astoundingly blows my mind, I don't, and I don't ask me to express to you, he says, not even the angels or the son, son only the father. You get the impression that Jesus couldn't be able to tell us even if he, even if he wanted to. Which, again, I'm not going to try to explain that. But you have that teaching over and over and over, and yet you still have people like a, a Wizenant or a Camping or a Jack Van Impey or a Tipler saying, no, no, Jesus, no, Jesus. I've actually got 80, 88 reasons why you return in 1988. Or May 11th, 2011. Oops, sorry, no, I was, I was wrong. I was off by it. October 11th, 2011. Or maybe in, in 2012, or definitely by, definitely by 27. 
And perhaps, perhaps you would never have audacity to set a date or, or to believe these people who set date. But I often hear Christians say very convincingly and very committedly that they're convinced that this is going to come back in their lifetime based on how they perceive the world to be going. And it, it's a much softer sort of date setting, but you're still date set setting. It's before you turn 80 or 90 or 100 max. It's gonna, he's going to come back in, in my lifetime. So needless to say, we're all in, in desperate need of believing even these basic details about the day of the Lord, about what it is and, and about when it's specifically we need, to, we need to know full well that it's not ours to know let's look in the second place at, at destinies in the, day of the, in the day of the lord destinies in the day of the lord in this passage paul is teaching that the day of the lord will be a day of destinies. And I use the there to remind us of the duality reality day. And remember, we're talking about two groups of people. We're talking about children of the day and children of the night. And when the Lord returns, the differences of these two groups are going to be finally and fully realized. Here are the two deaths. And you can see this, I think, most clearly if you skip forward to look at verse 9. One group, and forgive me if I'm mixing up my hands, but, but one group is destined for wrath. The other group is, is destined for salvation. Wrath, that's one destiny. Salvation, that's the, that's the other death. And we're going to look at both of those in turn. Though, uh, let me just tell you right off the bat that wrath in, in these verses is the most airtime. Just like, um, you know, the gladness of the day got most airtime in the previous passage. Here, uh, a lot of attention is, is, is given to the wrath. So wrath, wrath. The, the day of the Lord will be his coming in, in fun judgment. A pouring out of his wrath his righteous anger upon his enemies, upon all people who have not bowed their knees to King Jesus. Or out on people who, instead of submitting to his authority, have claimed their own authority and have done what's right in their own eyes. They've given themselves fully to, to, to sin, sins like drunkenness and, and healing and sloth, laziness, sexuality, to use just a few, few examples that are kind of close at hand in, in the text. And sin, you understand, must be punished. God will not be mocked. A man reaps those. There, there must be a final accounting if God is going to be proven to be just. And notice how the onset of his wrath is described for verses. It says, then, then, sin and destruction will come, come upon these people as labor pains on a pregnant woman, woman, and they will not escape. We're talking about destruction. And don't think for a minute there that this is just, when he says destruction, that will be, cease to exist and be kind of, totally annihilated. Rather, when he says destruction, he's referring to all of the horror and all of the hurt and hurt and terror that ends to be poured out on, out on all those who re remain apart from Christ. All those who, those who, are, who are resolutely against, against Christ. This is an, an eternal sort of destruction, which begins on the day of the Lord, but it, it lasts for eternity. The, the language of the passage in Matthew, I think, um, brings this out vividly. This is, the, their, their worm will never um, die. You know, the, 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 the flame will never be quenched. 
And to drive the point more, I think it rides at home when um, um, Paul uses, uh, uses illustrations. And so, Paul, so Paul's going to another one of Jesus' analogies, which is the analogy of labor pains that a pregnant woman has. And I think that that's a great comparison. You're always a little bit on shaky grounds once when, when you make comparisons with a, a woman's pregnancy. If Jesus didn't do it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even attempt it. Although I was at, at someone from, from our church, I was at there a few weeks ago, they were asking me, asking me about Ching. And, and uh, I said, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like birth. And the lady said, it's not like giving birth. So I, I'm, not gonna, I'm, not gonna, I'm not saying anything that Jesus didn't say. He, he's just t- talking about labor pains. And you understand, ladies, don't you, that labor pains are, are truly painful. I'm, you're never going to hear me minimize this. And the other thing about them is that, them is that they, they suddenly, with no warning, can't, can't schedule the onset of labor, at least in the first century you, could, you couldn't. But, but also what seems to be stressed by this analogy is the inev- inevitability of the whole thing. You know, so labor starts and that, that kid is coming, okay? You can't press pause, you can't re- rewind, you know, the eject has already been pushed. And it's just a matter of time for time for the moment. You're way past the point point of no return. That's that's the point. So in a way, the day of the Lord is going to come upon sinners suddenly. And there's no escape. There's no pause. There's no rewind. Even now, God's wrath is ripening to... uh, use a pregnancy word, and it's going to come to fruition. There's no, no turning back. I want, you to, I want you to notice also this destruction is going to come, come in the middle of delusion. Destruction come, comes in delusion. When the day of the Lord comes, these people will have just, just been saying things like, relax, everything is totally fine. Eat. Drink, be merry, merry. These people, there's peace. There's security. There's nothing to worry about. You, you, you can indulge, you can come, can come with religion that sin. There's, there's, there's no danger. It's fine. But notice, friends, that, that despite how sinners feel, despite what sinners say, they have no security. They have no peace with God. This is this is just pure delusion. It's pure, they're just lying lying to themselves. Christ is dead set against them, and Christ is dangerous on that day. The day of the Lord means full on wrath. That's the day of the wicked. But. The very same moment, momentum means salvation for those who are, in, who are in Christ. This is what God has destined us for. Do you see that again in 9? Our destiny, destiny, destiny of believers is to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ which we will obtain on that great day and on into eternity. Understand that three aspects to the salvation of in Christ. There is a past aspect, a present, present aspect, and a future aspect. So in terms of past, we can say they have been saved. We have been saved. When we repented our sins and, and put all of our faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as verse 10 says, he died for us. I love that. that. That's just like, like there's so much theology that's loaded just in those two in those two little words. Died for us, and what and what that means died in our our place as substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
When he died on that cross, Jesus took upon himself all of my sin and all of your sin. And there, the wrath was poured out on him instead of me. Me. That, that is amazing to think about because what that means, there's no more wrath that God has left for me when the day of the, day of the Lord is. No more wrath, more wrath for me. I stand to receive is salvation. All because of what Christ has done. So when I put rep- repentance and put my faith and trust in Christ, it's, it's appropriate for me to declare, I, am, I have been saved. But then we can also say, um, to, 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 we can also in the present tense and say that we are being saved. Okay, the present aspect of salvation, salvation that's known as sanctification, is a process whereby, whereby God is holiness in me. He's rooting sin out of me. And I'm being uh, progress, progressively greater conformity to the image and likeness of Christ. That's a wonderful saving work that God is doing in me and in you presently. We are being saved by, by God's grace. But what's in view in this passage is the future aspect of salvation. Looking forward to that day of the Lord in which we can, we can say, I will be saved. On that day, I will finally and, and obtain the outcome of my faith. Our destiny on that day is going to be fully realized. We will be saved. Now, I want you to notice also that these verses get even more specific about, about what our destiny is. Yes, we're, we're destined to obtain salvation, but, but what is the, pur- the purpose of salvation? I, I suppose there's a lot of purposes that we could talk about, and they'd all be right. Be right. Some of which we've already mentioned. But for example, we've we've seen that Christ died for us in order to give us us peace and true security, not the delusional kind that unbelievers have. We've been saved. God, God Christ, in order to give us, you know, to fully satisfy God's wrath. And the, de- the demands of justice that were previously leaning over our heads. Yes, that all of those are good reasons why Christ Christ died. Verse ten gives us a much more personal and much I won't I won't say more, but a very beautiful purpose: the death of Christ. Do you see it there? He died so that, and that little construction there is indicating a purpose here. Note this next thing is going to be to be the reason for which he died. He died so that we might live with him. Isn't that amazing? Seriously, think about it. Think about it. Christ's purpose. His ultimate desire there in dying for us is that we might live with him, that we might be with him. This, is, this lies at the very heart of what he prays for just before he goes to the, goes to the cross to him. In John chapter, seven, chapter 17, verse 12, he prays this way, Father, I desire that they also, also whom you have given me may be, may be with where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Part of the Lord Jesus Christ, his earnest desire of prayer is that we be with him and live with him. Friends, that is a prayer that the Father is going is to answer because that's, ex- that's exactly what he's in us for. We will live with Christ. We will b- be with Christ. And that goes whether you are awake or asleep. And just a little hint here, if you're noticing that in the text, Paul isn't using those words in verse 10, awake, awake and asleep, in the same way that he's been using them in the last, the last couple of verses. 
No, he's using them in the, in the sense that he used them at the end of chapter 4. Whether, whether we are, are alive or whether we have, whether we have died, the day of the Lord arrives. In either case, as we learned last week, we will be caught up with him and we will forever be with the Lord. In, all, in other words, we will have received our, our ultimate destiny full union with Christ. And if, and if think about this too, I don't think it's I don't think it's going beyond beyond to just consider this not from our perspective but for from Christ's perspective. He's saying he's saying that his is is for us to be with him. The Holy Spirit is telling us that the reason that he died is so that, that we would live with him be with him we're, we're used to thinking about our way waiting for christ reach have you ever ever considered that christ himself is eagerly awaiting great day his great day he's chomping at the bit in, in order to, to be his bride bride brother and sister his his beloved that 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 is a precious and that's a thought, it seems to me, that will inflame you more love for him and less desire to sin. Now, now let me hasten on to the very practical point of this passage, which, which is the final point. Duties in view of the Lord. Duties in view of the day of the, day of the Lord. And so here we're asking again, how... Shall we then live? How shall we now, now live in, in the light of all of these realities? It turns out that there's, there's a number of duty that are related to our destiny in view of the day of the Lord. And for, for starters, I, wa- I want to just give a very important principle. John Bun- Bunyan, I, I think, did a lot of reflecting on, on this. He understood from... Uh, his life this morning, and as we can read it in the Pilgrim's Progress, this this would have been an important principle for Bunyan, but it is certainly for us. And that is and that is that duties flow from our identity, not from demands. Duty flows from identity, not demands. This is a basic point, I think, but it's but it's one that we almost always forget. You know, we think and we and we we you know fall back into believing that, that we can operate best and most most faithfully given a list of demands. You know, things to do. If we're given a, a law, let's just say, and and then we really get down work and we just kind of check things off the list. That's 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 what we like. That's what makes us comfortable. But I hope that you'll also agree that this is ter- ter- this is hardly meeting. And can you can you you know testify from your from your experience that this is everlasting thing? It doesn't last very long at all. What we, what we need is some deeper, some better motivation, something that will really last and help. And here here's the help. Duties flow best from identity in other words our behavior is is tied directly to our being what we do do is inseparable from who we are so 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 to illustrate this we could return and Paul return to this overarching comparison between night people and day people Paul makes the point in verse 7 that night pe- people are going to do what night people do. People do. You know, your parents were right when they said that nothing good happens after dark. dark. That, that's when people get drunk. That's when they run around and carouse and get in all sorts of trouble. And we, sh- we shouldn't really be surprised by that. They're, ch- they're chilled darkness after all. Why, why do you get surprised every, every time you... You know, scroll through Twitter feed or, or, or watch news. You, you shouldn't be really th- thrown off by all of that. 
children of the dark are, are going to do stuff that pertains to the darkness. What, do you, what else, do you, else do you expect them to do? But that is not who we are. That is who we once were, granted. Praise God, he, he, tra- he transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of his beloved. His beloved. Verse 4 and, 4 and 5, it says, But you are not in, dark, in darkness. You're children of the light. You're children of the day. That's who we are. That, that's our identity. And I'm suggesting that our duties flow that, that identity. The duties that Paul gives are found in verse 6 to 11. And I think kind of boil them down to four, four, and, and I'll give you just, just a few seconds on each. First one is, stay awake. Look at verse six, six. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. You know, one of the times that I'm forced to be a, a morning person is in the fall, you know, you know during hunting season. You know it's important to get to your stand before the sun comes up. It's good to go in while it's really dark, the really cover of darkness. And I and I'd be you if I told you that you that I've dozed off in my tree stand in the morning. Which kids? That's why it's very important, very important to uh, wear a harness and clip yourself in every time. But effective hunting, you shouldn't really look to me for effective hunting advice but you could you could ask uh Brian, you could ask any number of these dudes in here and they'll tell you that effective hunting calls for, for much more than simply not falling asleep it, it calls falls for the kind of wake that it has you at the very end of your, your you know wrapped attention so that you're that you're here and, and identifying every tiny little sound in the woods. You know, you think about you're, you're, you're visualizing every potential laneway that you have to shoot at, shoot at, and plan all of the different particulars. And so that when when the deer actually do come, if they if they happen to come, it's not any kind of surprise. Surprised, this is how you figured figured they would approach. You, we need sort of a wakefulness, and and again, we could we could talk about hunting. We could talk about about the ancient weddings, you know, the illustration that Jesus gave about about attendance to a wedding, and and what they ought to be doing while the bridegroom is delayed, and di- and disaster comes upon that that sleep. But the ones who are ready are are those those who are first of all awake, but not just that, but watchful and eager. Trimming their lamps, getting, getting ready, and so the idea is we we need we need to be a people who are spiritually keen. It's no time for coast coasting. Understand, this is no time for for just casually approaching the things of the Lord. Christianity calls for wakefulness, and connected to this. In verse six and verse eight, it's the command to stay sober, not just stay awake, but stay sober. Sober. I guess on one level, well, this is a this is not to get drunk, like the children of the night do, and by by extension, this is a call not to engage in any kind of sinful behavior that that characterizes them. And is totally unfitting for a new kind of people, children of the day. So those those are are see part of what it means to stay sober, stay sober. But in verse eight, hopefully, Paul tells us exactly what he means by stay sober. He means that we need to we need to arm ourselves. You guessed it, guessed it that holy trin- trinity of virtues, faith, hope. And love, and we need to we need to arm ourselves with it. This, this is this is the language of the armor of God, which Paul employs to great use in other places, places like thirteen and in the book of Ephesians. You're you're well well aware of this. 
Although you'll notice that in those other places, there's not really a, a consistency as to what the helmet is, helmet is and what the breast is. And this just kind of, I think, I think warns and pressing these, these analogies too much. But I think Paul is just generally saying that, first of all, we need, we need to, be on, to be on guard. A breastplate, of, of course, covers the largest and most vital areas. Same too with a helmet. With a helmet. And so the, these are maybe why these were chosen, chosen. But the most important emphasis lays on faith, hope, and love. love. Faith, of course, a reminder, that, a reminder that all of our hope and all of our tr trust in what Christ has for us. And not only that, but in what Christ has taught us. And so having faith as a breastplate means employing all of those precious promises, all of, all of those truth, truth claims, the gospel, which we have, we have firmly believed, that, that's how we do battle. These are the weapons of our warfare. And similarly, love. We, we, we don't have to get into the various duties that we have, we have because in many ways they can all, all be summarized, the heading of love. Of love. We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. mind. And very, very much related to that, following hot on the heels of that, is we ought to love our neighbor as, as ourselves. So think about that duty this week as you arm yourself. Self. How, how may I love not just the people of God, God but how may I love people who are children of the dark? And then, arm, and then arm yourself with a helmet of hope. And this hope, once again, is the hope of salvation. Our, our heads all be looking up and looking for a great day of the Lord. And this is not just like a cross your fingers hope, really, really, really wish that it's true. This is, this is, a, this is a firm conviction based on the, uh, all that Christ has revealed to us, that, that he is indeed coming. And that when he comes, he desires to find, find faith in this, in this world. Those are our duties. Faith, love, hope. As we look, we look forward to the day when our faith will be finished. And when love will endure. There won't be a need for in those days. But love will continue to the glory of God. Here's the third duty. Stick with me for a, a second here. Speak encouragement. encouragement. You'll notice, I think, how, how recognize right off the bat, the bat that, that this is ending just like the previous one did. And then it ends on a very pra practical note. Paul is concerned that we would come alongside one another and that we would encourage one another, that we would build each other up the same way that... Uh, construction worker builds some sort of structure that we're that we're doing that to each spiritually about all of these things i i don't think i need to tell you that we need these constant reminders but one of the most lovely ways god has given us to to be reminded is sisters and sisters in christ looking for and hoping for the exact same thing we are what a joy it is to be able to watch and wait together, together, and to encourage one one another as we do, to to to, to gently but but firmly say to a brother or sister, um, um, wake up, wake up! That that sin you're 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 acting like like a child of of the of the night, but you're a child of the day. Put put the put that stuff away and watch with me. Be sober. We need to encourage one another. Encourage the faint-hearted. Exhort the sleepy. All of these things. Things. This is your task. This is your duty as a as a Christian. It's not to put your head down and hope that you're going to make it. No, to come along with the people of God, the people that He's given to into. That's why I notice that all of these these wonderful songs sing about that great day are 
corporate in, na- in nature. They're, they're songs for all of us, not individuals. And then let me close with this. Here's one more duty. For those of you who, an honest assessment of yourself would, would have to say that you are a child of the night. And I, I want to say this uh, uh, seriously and soberly to the, the young people who are here that have been had the, the privilege of being raised, raised in a Christian home. I want you to see how binary these identities are. And I know, I know you, I know you know that word. And I know everyone tells you that binary is bad. But when it comes to lots, but when it comes to your identity, to your to your standing before God, there's really only two options. You're either a child, a child of the light, or a child of the night. And if you, if an honest, honest assessment of yourself is that you are still apart from Christ, that you have not submitted to him, that you're still intent on living your own way, and, and actually the things of, of the night seem, seem very attractive. And as soon as, you, as soon as you kind of go out from the restraint of your parents, that's where you're headed. Let me just, just speak to you for a minute. Here's, here's your duty. Seek escape. You hear the solemn warning, warning of this text? On that great day, there will be for, for you no escape from destruction from your eternal destruction. There's no second chances. There's no pleading f- for, for mercy at, at that point. But here's the, here's the good news. The day the, Lord, the day the Lord has yet come. And so there is full opportunity for you, for you to seek mercy, to plead for mercy, to seek es- escape. And friends, I'm here to give you, the, give you the good news that there's escape from the wrath of God through the death of burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your, your sins can be plunged beneath the fountain that Christ has created through the shedding of his blood. You can be forgi- forgiven of your sins. God's wrath that right now stand, stands at you can be extinguished in the, the sacrifice of Christ, of Christ on us and the empty tomb. And, and my plea to you today is that you would, you would come to yourself and you would come to Christ. Seek escape so that on that great day, day you, can, you can look forward to the coming of Christ with, with gladness and joy and expectancy like the rest of us. Friends, let's go, let's together um, wait eager, eagerly expect upon that great day. Amen.